VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, April the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair. Let's get going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So it was the day in history in 1980 when Terry Fox began his marathon of hope by dipping his right leg into the Atlantic Ocean right here in St. John's. So he filled up two bottles of ocean water. One he was going to keep as a souvenir. The other he intended on pouring it into the Pacific Ocean upon completing his journey to Victoria, B.C. And, of course, we know Terry didn't make it all the way just outside Thunder Bay. He, he collapsed and eventually died. When polled, Canadians seem to believe that Terry Fox is the most beloved Canadian of all time. He's certainly an inspiration to many, and his Terry Fox run continues to this day, raising money for cancer care and cancer research. So Terry Fox began his Marathon of Hope today. It wasn't the first time he was in St. John's. He was here back in 1977 to participate in the Canada Summer Games that year, part of the uh, basketball wheelchair basketball team. So Terry Fox Marathon of Hope today. All right, if you're interested in some senior hockey puck drop at 8 o'clock, the Jack Byrne Arena, Game 7 between the St. John's Caps and the Clarenville Caribou to see who's going to be reigning supreme as senior hockey champions this year. Okay, this is a story which is getting an awful lot of traction already. And it's the fact that there's been a multi-year partnership agreement between the folks at the Eastbound International Speedway and Concert Park in Avondale, great facility. So for three years, they're going to be able to host some Pinty's NASCAR races. So, of course, inside the world of NASCAR, you know, the Cup Series with the Kevin Harvicks and the Joey Loganos and the Kyle Bushes, as opposed to the Pinty Series, which is pretty popular, the J.F. Dumoulin's and uh, J.F. Dumoulin, DJ Kennison, and Alex Tagliani, of course, who also raced in open-wheel racing. So they're coming with a deal. The concern that is brought to bear is that the province is actually contributing some $600,000 over the three years. So Premier Furry says he says there will be some return in the neighborhood of $5.4 million. They anticipate some 10,000 spectators per event. It's a popular series. I don't know how popular NASCAR or stock car racing here is in the province. I know there's a fair number of open-wheel fans, Formula One fans, Indy Lights and IndyCar. And it's, you know, the, the immediate reaction is, well, how about doctors and nurses and road work and the like? And this is not anything just beyond a personal observation. Sometimes some money going out the door results in big monies coming back in the door. Like when the city of St. John's was taking the task by investing some money to help attract the briar, it saw some $10 million in ac- economic activity. And, you know, whether there's some subsidies flowing to some TV and film projects, which has seen a professionally trained crew and return and lots of economic activity. So the vast majority of people in my email inbox think this is a complete waste of money. I guess it remains to be seen. You know, and once again, when the eastbound track is viewed as a home potentially for this level of racing, maybe it'll make it easier to attract different levels of racing. Uh, in years to come. So people are displeased if I'm just doing an anecdotal review of my own email inbox, but that's the deal. $600,000 over three years to bring the Pinties series. The first race is going to be the Pro Line 225 on June 25th. Tickets go on sale Friday the 15th, the end of the month, or end of the week at 12 noon. So here come the NASCAR guys. And some of the immediate reaction too is, what about climate change? 
and that's offered by people who don't care about climate change. And the price of gas, well, the cars will have to pay for their own gas. So, and they use a different type of fuel than we would in our regular rigs. Anyway, but here they come, and it's getting some enormous reaction. You want to do exactly that? You know what to do. Pick up the phone and get in the queue. I want to say good morning to my buddy Dave Sullivan. Dave Sullivan and Mary Walsh are on their way to Los Angeles. The missus downstairs. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's absolutely hilarious and uber popular once again. They've been named an official selection of the Los Angeles Comedy Film Festival. Off to L.A. with the missus downstairs. So Dave Sullivan and Mary Walsh, congratulations to you and the entire team behind that particular production. Okay, this is an interesting story. For quite a long time, there have been many female rowers suggesting that it's antiquated and sexist to have different course lengths available to women and men. So now there's a newly elected president, uh, Nancy Beaton, famous rower. Now there's going to be the opportunity for women to row the men's course. Immediately that draws some odd reaction as well. So I don't know if I have a clear and full understanding of it. They're going to give it a test drive in June, see how successful it is. So all I think it means is that men will be able to row in a short course sprint. So it will be just men in that race. And if there's enough women crews that would like to register for the long course race, there will be a women's long course race. So just kind of makes sense on a couple of levels. Some of the most competitive women's uh, teams, crews, they may absolutely be wanting and willing to train to go the entire length of the lake. Now, I did it once, and I've been in rugby scrums and hockey fights and all kinds of stuff. It is the most grueling physical endeavor I've ever experienced. And, of course, the women will absolutely be able to roll the course. Of course they will. So, again, maybe it's just the emotional turmoil and the extent of the pandemic and just every single story, even if it's just headline reading, brings upon the most emotional responses. This might be a good thing. You know, people immediately say, well, look at the swimming debacle in the United States and men or transsexuals, uh, transgenders, uh, swimming, uh, men who swim with women, all that nonsense that people get so wound up about. But this might be a good thing. I wonder how many uh, women's crews out there have anticipated this and be looking forward to rowing the entirety of the men's so-called men's long course. So Ashley Peach or Nancy Beaton or anyone who's listening, Ashley's the vice president, captain of the course. See if we can maybe get someone on to give us the ins and outs of exactly what's going to go on here. And of course, the Royals are coming. They won't be coming for the regatta or NASCAR, but they are coming in May as the Princess of Wales, or the Prince of Wales, pardon me, Prince Charles, and the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla. They'll be coming to Canada, three stops, Ottawa, Northwest Territories, and yes, right here in the city of St. John's. There's lots of legitimate debate about the role of the monarchy, not only inside the UK, but certainly in Canada as well. And whether it be the Queen's representative, the Governor General Mary Simon, or Andrew, the current Lieutenant Governor, Judy Foote. But there's lots of pushback going on. Now, I don't know how they'll be received, and I think it's absolutely fair to ask how much money this is going to cost us. Remember last time around, when they were last here, I think it was in 2009, didn't want to stay at government house. Of course, security is costly. They fly over on their own dime, but I think then we're on the hook for the rest of their visit. Okay. So they've had a couple of recent really poor experiences. They had a tour of the Caribbean. So Belize, Jamaica, and the Bahamas in February, and that was uh, Prince William and Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, and they were run out of town. The reaction of folks there, including and most notably in Jamaica, where the Prime Minister Andrew Holness, before they even sat down for their formal conversation, the Jamaican Prime Minister said they plan on cutting ties with the monarchy in full, and that actually happened in Barbados as well back in 2021. 
So here they come here. I don't know what kind of reception they will get, but there's, I think, fair modern-day questions about the role of the monarchy. And, of course, this is to celebrate uh, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. She celebrated 70 years on the throne. That happened in early February. So here come the royals. And for some people, they'll be highly anticipating the visit to get a glimpse of Charles and Camilla. Others, not so much. And fair enough. You want to talk about it? And I do think it's absolutely fine to be asking about the costs associated with this kind of tour. You want to tackle it? Let's do it. All right, let's move on to maybe some more local and more matters of importance to you, the listener. It's an ongoing conversation about what's happening in healthcare, and of course it is, further exacerbated by the pandemic. And the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association is talking about the fact there's going to be several rural health clinics that will be without a doctor in short order. St. Albans has already lost their last remaining doctor. So the community is being mentioned by Dr. Susan McDonald, or Harper Breton, Bayvert, Fogo, and Buckins. They'll refer to it as a crisis, and many people will view health care and the state of it as a crisis. And, you know, looking for quick fixes. Let's say some of the quiet parts out loud. An obvious and immediate question will be, is that we'll have to ask in the recruitment effort whether or not doctors who are in demand and have every option available right across the country for their services as to whether or not they would like to make an isolated, rural, smaller part of the province in the country their home to set up shop. It might be absolutely the best thing of all time for many doctors who might just like the province, might just like the, the smaller town and the slower pace and the beauty and the people. But I do think it becomes tricky to recruit doctors to certain parts of the province. And I think that's proven to be the case. Also add to the fact that when the doctor who's potentially interested in moving, say, to Bayvert, speaks with the doctor who's now about to leave Bayvert about their experience, it might not paint the picture that makes an attractive option. So we've got ourselves a real concern. And some of these communities are busy, busy industrial areas. And they wonder about the worst case scenario, what about if there's an accident? And the distance for the ambulance to travel, say from Hermitage, two and a half hours both ways to the closest acute care or emergency tra trauma center. So is it and can it and will it be attractive? That's the big question. We do know the health court is looking at the transition to a new health care delivery model, but that doesn't address the immediacy of the concern, whether it be with the number of nurses, the number of nursing vacancies, and yes, the pressure that the province absolutely is facing about recruiting and retaining doctors, all the way from general practitioners right through specialists. So where the answer is, I don't know. But it gets a little bit more confusing when we look at some of the other things that are actually happening out there. It looks like the province, and under the direction of Minister Hagee, is looking to commission some research on how we staff healthcare professionals and some of the move to early retirement and what people call casualization, so being on the casual list. There's some 500 or so healthcare workers isolating at this moment in time. So we're going to change the way that professionals will be able to talk about the numbers of hours they work. All right. It's part of the changing landscape, but healthcare is a much different kintle of fish than other professions. Add to the confusion, we're going to commission research on that front. But at the exact same time, it's just a little over a year ago that the province engaged an organization called Change Healthcare, Healthcare Canada to come up with create uh, software for scheduling. You know, it's also intended to find some savings inside the system, and the staff are absolutely overworked and burnt out and exhausted. I get all of that. So. 
this contract can be potentially very lucrative. The more money that the company is actually able to find savings, then they can earn up to $35 million over the course of the deal. It also comes with an implication, if their proposed solutions are not fully implemented, there's some financial penalties to be paid. So how and why are we commissioning research for how we're going to schedule healthcare workers when we've got a really whopping big contract in place with Health Change Healthcare Canada to look at some of these exact issues? And we know healthcare professionals deserve a day off. And in fact, it's not only about their health and well-being, which is obviously quite important, but it's also about patient safety. So at the same time, we're doing two different pieces of work to try to deal with one particular issue. And look, if you're living in one of those communities that was mentioned, this is not a knock on your beautiful community. This is a question that I just think will be asked of these doctors who are approached by the new deputy minister and or his team to try to bring them to your community because it's an all-encompassing thing. It would also be important to conduct an exit interview with these doctors who are now resigning or just simply leaving as to exactly what's going on there and to maybe try to deal with some of those issues to make it a more attractive option for a, a highly mobile and in-demand healthcare professional. So you want to do it, talk about it? We can do it. And, of course, the whole concept that was recommended in the Green Report to consolidate the four regional health authorities into one. Obviously, that is proposed as some massive big questions that we're happy to talk about here on the program this morning. And this is not exactly health care, but it's related, of course, to health care and for the justice system and for some of the root causes of homelessness, poverty, and otherwise. And this story is really quite something. And the headline will just blow your mind. So reports of puddles of urine on the floor, sour-tasting hot dogs, pizza pockets and broughten eggs for breakfast, locked laundry rooms at some of the for-profit emergency shelters here in this city, operated by four companies, and it's really something. Just the phrase, for-profit emergency shelter. You know, does that really even jibe with how we're supposed to be conducting the people's business and attending to their needs and addressing root cause issues? And yes, provision of emergency shelter when and if required. But the conditions, and now not every emergency shelter will be as decrepit and as disgraceful as some of the reports that we're hearing and seeing. But this is really quite something. When they talk about the lack of food and trying to sleep as much as possible to avoid the hunger pangs. And then there's broken windows and doors, poor sanitation. We're putting people who are already quite vulnerable in bad situations. And yes, you might say, well, the ne'er-do-wells find themselves in that position through no fault but their own. When, in fact, I think that's an oversimplification that kind of betrays the conversation. We should absolutely be looking at how and why and who these people are and how they ended up in this predicament and try to put programs and services and supports in place to try to reduce the numbers of people looking for one of these 44 beds. It comes at an enormous cost. Now, Minister Abbott says we have to amp up our inspections and oversight, and he's absolutely right. And in the reference to cost, 44 available beds. It cost last year in excess of $1 million. So we have an absolute issue that has to get some sort of, and again, use the word immediacy, it needs some attention ASAP. And yes, of course, we absolutely have to talk about how and why, just like everything else in the social determinants of health and who's on social assistance and, and why they are and maybe dealing with some issues to help more people in the future to avoid any of these particular situations. You want to check, You want to talk about it today? I think it's an important one, and we should do exactly that. Well, and we know the issues that continue to plague the Muskrat Falls Project. Ugh. 
And you know the issues. So now Hydro hired a consulting company called Hatch, and they've been around and looking at various facets of the project for a number of years. And we're way behind schedule, and we're way over budget, and the problems with the Labrador Island link and the reliability or the lack thereof or concerns with reliability for the 1,100 kilometers of cable running from the tip of the island right to Soldier's Pond. And even at Soldier's Pond, there's problems. So now they've got a report in hand that talks about Hollywood uh, still providing recall power. So that's a reference to power and the synchronization with the grid. Four hours in the notice of a large major muskrat-related outage. It would cost more than $600 million between this year and 2030. And then add in the fuel and capital upgrades is, is unbelievable. One of the justifications for the Muskrat Falls project was yes to uh, move around or get around the boogeyman that is the province of Quebec. And it was also about decommissioning one of the most polluting facilities in the country, the Holyworth Thermal Generating Station. If there's continued concerns with reliability, and they've been noted by Liberty and others, and it's really a, a absolute potential, is, is Hollywood even going anywhere? No, Hatch goes on to say it's in pretty good shape for its age, and that's a paraphrase of their reference in the report. But is it even going anywhere? And what are the options for backup power? Because it's not as simple as if there was a problem at Hollywood, for instance, and the time for restoration of power and or down power lines. If it happens in the long-range mountains, we all know the territorial problems with access and they're talking about blackouts and rolling brownouts maybe as long as 30, 45 days. We can't have that. So there's a new report in hand to talk about the potential for Holy Road to be in place until 2030. Okay. Hatch goes on to recommend a cleaner burning diesel auxiliary boiler. Uh, Hollywood produces about 30% of peak electricity requirements in the winter months. So, yeah, that story, I don't think we should be shocked. But anywho, there you go. Uh, how are we doing on the phone there this morning, David? We'll get her going. A couple of quick ones. You know, we talked with uh, Todd Perrin yesterday about the hospitality sector, and they just had their, for the first time in a few years, a face-to-face -face, uh, conference, and the optimism in the room, and I think that's encouraging. But even something as fundamental as the lack of rental cars or the whopping cost, the exorbitant cost, to actually secure a rental car. Just imagine how many bookings we might lose because people can't find transportation upon their arrival. And the Premier says they're looking for creative solutions. And this is a problem that's happening right across the country and in many parts of the world. What does a creative solution even look like? You know, car sharing, which is all the rage in other parts of the world, we don't seem to have the ability to implement it here for some reason. I know it's got relations with insurance and otherwise. But anyway, you want to talk about the come home a year or anything inside of that envelope, we're happy to do it. And I see that uh, Inuk MHA, Layla Evans, is completely disinterested in an apology from the province regarding the province's role in the five residential schools that were here in Newfoundland and Labrador. She talks about the different issues that continue to plague her part of the province. And unless they are addressed, then it would simply be a hollow apology regarding residential schools because if we're talking about equity and equality and the quality of life she says that unless attention is given to these particular issues regarding healthcare, communications transportation infrastructure needs in northern labrador that and here's the quote from her when you look back at the inuit of northern labrador we never ever got equal access to services and the infrastructure we have been neglected year after year after year after year so she's not interested in an apology until it's all encompassing with the issues that she sees and faces with the people of northern Labrador and a big cost of living debate in the House of Assembly yesterday and it was only a matter of time before we heard reports of some diesel being stolen those types of things 
Unbelievable. Uh, very quick, for information purposes only, yesterday when the province updated its COVID hub, six additional deaths have been reported, bringing the total to 130. Our condolences to the families. 20 of these deaths have happened in the month of April alone, and today's just the 12th. So hospitalization dropped to 35 from 41. There are seven people in critical care. We wish them all a speedy recovery. If you want to talk about numbers and what we're supposed to do with the numbers, we can do that as well. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. Let's get a tune going. It was today, back in 1965, where the Birds, which were an interesting band, the only consistent member was frontman Roger McGuinn. He was Jim McGuinn until the mid-1967. Uh, a bunch of different members have come and go. David Crosby, Gene Clark, Michael Clark, Chris Hillman, and others. Uh, Parsons, Graham Parsons is another one that pops into my mind. They were a cool band and released some pretty great albums with some absolute hits. And today is one of those hits. was released in 1965 with Mr. Tambourine Man. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. couple of notes. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know better. Nancy Beaton is just an accomplished rower. She's not the president. The president of the Royal St. John's Regatta is Noelle Kennel. So she is part of the move to change the option for women to row the long course. Absolutely. And... Again, the winner of the Game 7 tonight between the Caps and the Caribou down at Jack Burner at 8 o'clock, they go on to play the, the uh, Southern Shore Senior Breakers for the Avalon East Senior Hockey Championship and, of course, the glorious Herder Trophy. Okay, and yes, I know that's Dylan. We'll get the birds in there. Let's go to line number four. Sam, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Yes, I'm pretty good anyway, boy. A great show. I'm feeling okay this morning. Thanks a lot. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Boy. Uh, I just wanted to respond. Uh, uh, yesterday, you had a gentleman on there, and he started off with uh, he started off with tourism, and uh, then he uh, totally went into something else as it pertained to the fish rate. Right. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Patty, but uh, uh, my take on it was well, you know, like uh, for to uh, do away with the uh, the uh, fishery and this that another thing. I wasn't quite sure of the rationale behind it, whether it was for in an effort to allow stock to rebuild or to revamp the way we approach uh, the fishery and the execution of. I'm not entirely sure what the rationale was. He did make reference to the fact that there's a moratorium on herring and mackerel to allow for those stocks in certain parts of the province to rebound. So uh, I don't know. There's certainly absolutely no need to shutter the entirety of the fishery. I mean, we look at even snow crab this year might have a landed value in and around or in excess of $1 billion. So there's every reason to try to improve the way we do it because every single year, Sam, you know better than me, we fight about the same issues every single season on every single species by and large. So there's a way for it to be streamlined and more efficient, but no need to shut it down in full. Well, uh, yes, Patty, but I mean, like, and, and I'll do respect to tourism in, in industry. I mean, uh, you know, look, it's very important to Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, you know I have all kinds of respect for that, but I mean you don't you don't come off and say uh, well, you know shut the fishery down and and like the minister up there said uh, 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 you know oh leave the fish in the water and we'll uh, and we'll uh, uh, put people in IT jobs. Well, I mean I'm 63 years old now. Uh, it's a job for me to go into a IT job right now. I'll tell you that. You know, but anyway, the point I'm trying to make. Is we you know we can't dismiss the fishery. Uh, we, we you've got to understand a lot of uh, uh, rural Newfoundland and Labrador depends solely on the fishery. So I mean it's fine to say you know like uh, you know the tourism piece of it. Uh, you know about uh, people going out to the different uh, communities all over Newfoundland and Labrador. 
But in the same breath as we say that, you know, the fishery still has the, you know, uh, still has to be be maintained. And uh, you know, like I'm not, I'm not, you know, what that gentleman said, I was, I was totally blown away by, you know, like for him to uh, suggest such a thing. And I'll tell you something, Paddy. Yeah. If it was one thing that our two levels of government has haven't even got the word in their face is, is the fishery. Uh, you got the uh, you got the minister up in Ottawa now. Uh, I, I don't know uh, where her head is go. Uh, making decisions based on no signs. Uh, uh, last year their boats were broke down. They didn't get any signs on on different species, such as the herring and the mackerel. And then here in St. John's, we got a minister in there who, who's completely out the lunch, which they, uh, as it pertains to the fishery. You don't hear one word from any of them politicians. And I and listen, I was in there. I spent a couple of years in government, and I was there. And one thing that I always said to the, to the, uh, to the members across the way was, you know something? There's, it's not even in their vocabulary. The fishery is, you know, like, I mean, we're talking about going out now and spend $600,000 on NASCAR. While, while it's a great drop for the province, but, again, there's nothing on the fishery, nothing. And, and so I'm, I'm very disappointed, you know, and, and for somebody out there, we say, in the tourism industry who think that way, I mean, I'm, I'm just totally appalled by it. Okay, what money should the province be spending in the fishery and on what? They got to get. Uh, I know the federal government is responsible for the science piece, but if it don't get done, it don't get done. Uh, you know, you got you you got. As far as I'm concerned, right now, the Department of Fisheries provincially is a sole entity for one group of people, and that's the plant and that's the plant owners. That's the people who they loosen. So, but you don't hear nothing. You know, a lot of these guys in there sitting around that table in government, uh, they live in rural Newfoundland, Labrador. They have many. I'll just use uh, our member, uh, 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 Mr. Cracker. He's 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 living in the biggest fishing district. Pam Parsons is another one. But yet you hear nothing. You don't hear nothing. You know you don't hear nothing as it pertains to the fishery. You know if you can't do any better than what they're doing, uh, the Department of Fishery shouldn't even exist. That's, that's just my take Regarding monies to be spent by any level of government in the fishery, it just brings me back to when there was an announcement of uh, a pot of some $400 million that was going to be spent on modernizing that gear and all kinds of different projects associated with the uh, inshore harvest. And that lo and behold went away. It was going to be $280 million from the federal government, $120 million from the province. It was announced and they almost dislocated their shoulders, patting themselves on the back. That went by the wayside. Then all of a sudden it was rebranded as the Atlantic Fisheries Fund, and all of a sudden it was only $100 million. And the monies has gone out in dribs and drabs. You know, I think it was eight projects a couple of years ago that got some funding, and it's important for that kind of monies to flow. But, uh, you know, as soon as you talk about spending money in the fishery, those two things pop into my mind. Immediately. Uh, anyway, I'll give you the last word, Sam. Okay, uh, Patty. But anyway, like I said, you know, like uh, we can't trade off our fishery for tourism, and we can't trade off tor- tourism for the fishery. But we have to be supportive of each other. And in order for us to do that, you know, like we, we can't have people out there thinking that way. And and you know, I don't know if uh, this guy understands that if the fishery dies in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, as do a lot of rural communities in Newfoundland and Labrador. 
Ain't that the case. Sam, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the budget. From what angle, we'll find out. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the progressive conservative member for exploits. That's Pleeman Forsey. Good morning, Pleeman. You're on the air. Good morning, Pleeman good morning, Forsey. Patty. You're on the air, sir. Good morning. Good morning to you. Patty, my call this morning certainly is a continuation of the eroded and deteriorated health care system here in central Newfoundland. Uh, we now have, Patty, thousands of people from Harbour Breton to uh, Fogo, uh, you know, Bishop Hall's Buckins, all in the central area now being left with, a, with a, uh, doctors and uh, it's creating, creating a serious problem there, Patty. It's, it's now in a crisis. The question will be, and I know this is not a catch-all, but what exactly can be done? Because I hear these stories all day, every day. We talk about the issues every single show. I bring it up off the top of the program. I think we might have a vision of the ability to recruit and retain a doctor as a very fundamental and simple one. But obviously, given what we've seen, and whether or not we can blame government for not having a formal strategy in place, and I think that's completely fair, but I'm not sure exactly what could be done. Healthcare professionals are in demand. Is this an attractive problem to work in? Are some of the smaller communities attractive options for these highly mobile trained professionals? I just don't know what the answer is. Well, Patty, you're right. I mean, say something that, you know, the, the Liberals dropped, they had seven years at this now, Patty, and they dropped the ball on it. They really did. They should have been doing more for the incentives for students coming out instead of deterring them. Uh, they could have been uh, more incentives there for the doctors to stay. This wasn't done. You know, and right now, I mean, say the only immediate solution to the central area would be uh, locums probably and nurse practitioners. You know, uh, the, NL, the NLA has, is, has been speaking out against it. Uh, residents have been weighing in on it. Uh, us opposition have been telling them for for the last two, three years that we've been there, that we need this situation to be addressed. And they've, they've failed to act, Patty. They really have. Well, it's absolutely been a problem brewing for quite a long time. If we look at some of the national news, I think we'll realize very quickly that we are not alone in these particular healthcare professional struggles. That's not that's cold comfort to people in your region or anywhere else in the province who are looking for access. You know, you mentioned nurse practitioners and the whole concept of the primary collaborative healthcare teams. And yes, the couple of clinics that have opened here in St. John's, 9,000 people have signed up on the patient roster. That's a good thing. They didn't have a family doctor, even though you're just a client the clinic you don't exactly get the same doctor every time which is a concern for some but in relation to the nurse practitioner far too many people see them as less than if you don't get a white coat gp then you're not getting the kind of treatment you want when i think that kind of betrays exactly the training professionalism and accreditation of a nurse practitioner or an lpn we've got to do a better job in telling the people in the general public exactly what kind of treatment you can get and the trust we should be placing in these people because you don't necessarily need a doctor an md every single time you go in to get a prescription or a minor ailment or some of the fundamentals that we go to our family doctor for these professionals are absolutely an excellent uh, replacement uh, for lack of a better term for seeing a gp every time 
Yeah, I know, uh, Patty. Uh, and and nurse practitioners can be utilized, and uh, and people would be. I, I think people would be comfortable with seeing a nurse practitioner. It would be a lot better to use nurse nurse practitioners than than use vir- virtual care right now, which uh, which people uh, really uh, really are looking for uh, hands on hands on treatment. You know, uh, in regards to the emergency rooms down in uh, Harbor Britain, those places, you know, they're they're leaving people now in in a serious situations. They have to look, drive drive long distance in Patty just just to get to a, an emergency room now Patty which is already full and overwhelmed you know it's it's a very serious situation I know uh, you know in the past the government has spent you mentioned in the preamble the government spent 30 million dollars uh, to streamline the health care system uh, they spent five million on, on Rothschild uh, to add insult to injury Patty to the people here in central New Zealand, the uh, premier could spend another quarter million dollars on a new office here in central so that the premier has, an, has another voice uh, here in central. I don't know how many pre, how many voices that the premier needs in the central area before he starts to listen. Fair question. I appreciate the concern and the time this morning, Pleeman. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye bye. It's Pleeman Forsey. Okay. He's the MHA for exploits. Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I just want to start uh, acknowledging we lost uh, Professor Scott Lynch. Uh, he was the uh, department head of economics and also uh, one of the three members of the uh, CARE group at uh, MUN, which is the Collaborative Applied Research in Economics. Yeah, I saw the email from Wade Locke this morning. He passed away. So, he, you know, Doug May retired this, uh, this year, um, and uh, Dr. Locke is retiring this year as well. So uh, hopefully there's people out there going to pick up the torch. Hopefully so. I mean, uh, I know him by reputation only, but a uh, sad loss for the community and certainly for his department. Yeah, 100%. Economics is a, is a strange science because there's, uh, there's so many different perspectives, but uh, getting over to our budget, which we got dropped, the provincial government budget on Thursday, um, the topic changes in the air. I mean, I, I, I do think we always got to start with some positives, and, and, you know, there's been a lot of progressive change and, you know, all these announcements uh, from you know the wind and changing of Noia and CNLOPB to energy, so so there's definitely you know the, the, the party, the Liberal Party, seems to be working hard and managed to bring home Beta Nord. Whether you agree or disagree with it, it's uh, it was a big accomplishment. I think that that project may or may not have. May, I think that whatever lobbying was done definitely helped get that bring that across. And I know we all are relying on oil revenues. But, but, you know, what is that reliance? Ten years ago, it was uh, 30, 32% of government revenue. This year, 10. So, again, I know it's important to people that are in the industry and the 4,000 employed directly and the offshoots onshore. I get all of that. And 10% is nothing that you can sneeze at. But sometimes, whether it be provincial conversations and or on the national scale where oil and gas represents 5% of GDP, I think it's become a political hot potato as opposed to when we talk about government policy and economics and investment and subsidies and taxes and royalties we've kind of made it the it's us versus them it's the red versus blue when sometimes that's kind of led us down some weird political paths oil for us is like lotto tickets and, and it's amazing there are there are uh, studies out there that show there's a, a lot of people actually have lotto tickets winning a lottery is their retirement plan and and it's almost like in newfoundland and labrador there's there's the mega project or, or oil is our excuse for not dealing with the fundamental challenges that we face every day and the boom and bust of oil has gotten us into so much trouble kind of kind of equivalent to a lottery ticket win where you you get all this money and then instead of maybe investing it and and making sure that it lasts you for you and your gener- your family for generations 
Instead, you go out and build big houses and, and spend it all, and then you have a higher quality of life and a higher standard of living, and you need more money to keep it going. And, and I, I think that's where we are. And, I, you know, drilling into this budget that was dropped, um, you know, if you if you compare it to what Moya Green and the PERC group came out with last year, that we were in these dire financial situation and that we needed to uh, reduce our spending and do difficult things. When you look at the budget, we've actually increased our spending. And somehow magically, and I don't really quite understand where the supposed deficit of $351 million comes from when I look at it, and and it clearly says we have to borrow to cover our spending this year $1.28 billion. I don't. I, I can't draw a line between where the three hundred fifty-one million dollars comes from, and and it's, uh, you, you know. I've had a hard time with a few of these numbers, because the actual total borrowing requirements for twenty-two, twenty-three is in the neighborhood of two point seven billion dollars. So I don't necessarily get the three fifty-one. Plus, I'm not a hundred percent sure what this uh, flow through federal monies of seven hundred forty-four million dollars are, what they're earmarked for, and what's actually happening with that. Whether that be pandemic relief monies or recovery monies, I just don't know. But it's a reference made many, many times by the minister of this federally, wholly funded flow through money. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, in the, and then you, and then you see that you know they're talking about balanced budget legislation, and and when you look at the fact that spending is increasing by eight percent, and on top of that, you've got the you you have the fact that the collective agreements all expire, and now we're going back into negotiations, and obviously everybody's looking for. Uh, cost of living raises, and there seems to be some of that may be built into the budget, and there's also severance built into the budget, fairly big number. Um, there's not a lot of transparency here, and and it seems like for the big announcements, um, you know, we're we're we're, rolling, we're banging them away, and that's great. And uh, however, on the difficult side of it, the real hard side of it, um, there seems to be a, a real quietness, and you know. And I, as, I, as I look at it, you know, you've got you've got all these different groups, and everybody's lopped into the same group. So, for example, nurses. Not every nurse is overworked. Not every nurse is stressed. But we're going to treat them all the same. And I don't know how we. What extract. does that mean? Well, for example, I have friends and family who are nurses, and uh, none of them are overworked. None of them are stressed. Uh, you know, so I think that. But what's somehow, the reference to we're treating them all the same? Like, what is the province done in this budget to treat nurses all the same? Oh, nothing. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm jumping over to the fact that. You know, we're trying to deal with we're trying to deal with our crisis in healthcare, and when we repeat things over and over again, then obviously it, it exacerbates the situation. And people who maybe are not feeling uh, that stress will then kind of start feeling the stress. If we, you know, wh- whatever you tell yourself, you're right. You know, if you tell yourself that you're stressed, then you're going to be stressed. If you tell yourself you're not stressed, then you're going to be stressed. You know, you won't be stressed. But that that doesn't that doesn't diminish how some nurses are in the high pressure situations. And I, I just don't know how we break that out. You know, and the other thing I don't know how we break out is right now our non bargaining unit people are linked to the bargaining unit. So if if uh, members of NAEP get raises, then everybody upstream from them, managers, directors, ADMs, everybody get that same raise and but that need to be the case. And plus, the short answer to how do we break out these specific nurses who are and who are not stressed, the short answer is you can't. Uh, and so when the representative body, like the Registered Nurses Union, say that they've got an issue, and they even refer to 600 vacancies and 580-odd healthcare workers isolating, I know a nurse that's stressed to the max to the point where she quit six months ago. So I get it. If you generalize, then I generally th- think that's a bad thing. But I don't know how you avoid it in the realm of healthcare in particular, because I would suggest 
test for the majority of nurses they are exactly that they're burnt out and you know even if we've got to try to structure up some way where they can find a way to get time off that just leads us to believe that yes there's an absolute concern and the nurse that might not be stressed today if they can't get any time off this summer they might very quickly this fall become that exact person you know and and i don't know how we balance the fact that we only have a couple of months of nice weather in newfoundland and labrador that you can kind of count on and you know, some people who work in the tourism industry, obviously, or in the hospitality industry, well, they obviously can't take the summers off. And I, I don't know how you, you, you know, when we look at, when we look at the problem with, uh, you know, more people dying and people not getting tests and not getting procedures done, I, I, I just don't know how we balance it. And th- this is the hard part with all of us. We don't, we don't want to turn the whole province upside down and have every all our employees upset. And I just, I, I feel like the only way we can really have these, have, you know, make progress and deal with these really existential challenges in spe- you know specifically financial ones which have not gone away no matter what minister cody has said in in her budget and her great speech and and i have a great deal of respect for all of them i know they're trying really hard and it's you know i just i just feel like everybody needs to get to the table i mean over two years ago i said we need to get organized labor and everybody in the room and we need to have difficult straight talk and figure out how we balance the financial realities that we face and try and deliver services. But at the same time, call on Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to do their part, to be healthier, because right now we're talking about this healthcare crisis. And I, and I just would like to, you know, had a great chat yesterday about diet and about walking. I mean, that's the type of stuff we need to hear announcements on. You know, I want to see the premier and the ministers out for a walk and the opposition's out for the walk. And instead of having Timbits at but of course, and th- therein lies the problem. As soon as they do that, they're taking a task where they should be in the office doing work. And I've seen it happen when the premier posts a picture of himself coming back from a morning run or something. Boom, go to work, you know. So we're having a hard time crafting messages because we've arrived at a place where politics is, is just so contentious. And it's the red versus the blue and everyone else be damned. It's just such a weird, weird way we're getting on with things now. Just to remind folks... You can be a staunch supporter of one color, one party or another, and by color I mean the stripe of their party, uh, but your party's not perfect. Your elected officials do not have all the answers. There's no shame in being in a supporter of a party that acknowledges when they take a misstep. There's no shame in acknowledging when the other side does something or says something that is actually wise and productive. But we cannot bring ourselves to do it because it's a win at all costs. It's a zero-sum game, and that is dragging us back. And people are refusing to acknowledge it, but it just plays out every single time if everything Trudeau does is idiotic and moronic and he belongs in jail that's ridiculous if every single thing that's said by a member of the conservative party is the exact same three downsides it's also ridiculous so we've just got to people have just got to apply a bit more critical thinking and don't be so staunch in your support of one party or another because for better or worse or whether you like it or not they are not perfect they do not have all the answers they have lots of shortcomings and we should be able to acknowledge it so we actually have better lives I'm so sick of the pipe of the partisanship that used to be of course run of the mill in supporting one political party or another now it's not a line drawn a line drawn in the sand it's a jackhammer that's divided the sidewalk so we have arrived at a place where we're having a hard time making any steps forward because no one's willing to let the other party actually drag us forward regardless of who you support last word to you tom well i think that was very well said i will add that everything is so complicated so nuanced anybody in particular a politician who stands up and in a soundbite can offer you a solution, you need to turn that person off or call them up and say, listen, don't treat us like idiots. 
this is very complicated, but you've got to be honest. You've got to lay all the cards on the table. We are in a difficult situation. However, the Flanders Labradorians are incredibly resourceful. It was not that long ago that we wouldn't be having these problems because we were sustainable. We looked after each other, and we were too proud to make the kind of mistakes that we're making now. So, so let's all think critically. I want to emphasize what you just said. That's great work. Patty, everybody stay safe. Take care. Appreciate your time, Tom. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Quick comment based on uh, what uh, Sam Slade said earlier about the fishery and the caller yesterday, Don. He's going to just have a quick response here before we get to the news. Line three, Don, you're on the air. Oh, good morning again, Patty. Morning. <clears throat> Sorry, I wanted to just clarify there because um, obviously I didn't do a very good job. Uh, you weren't quite sure where I was going with the conversation. We did. Get, it's my fault. We got jumped around to a few topics, mainly talking about uh, uh, mindfulness, and that's just fine. But uh, no, I just want to send my apologies out to well yourself and to Sam as well about the comments that I quickly interjected there about the fishery, and I I did not uh, I I said what I what I what I meant was not to close the uh, the fishery. Close. I, re- I recommend closing the commercial the commercial fishery, and that is those very few liners that we still have. Uh, I just seen one drive uh, go by there a second ago, uh, in our outports. Those very few fishermen that uh, employ a few people on their boats. And uh, as Sam said, well, if you take out and close the fishery, um, well, the poor outports they aren't going to be supported, you know, because that supports the outports. I don't believe that uh, those few fishermen that are in our waters are some more supporting the outports. Hardly anybody fishes anymore. And there's well, it depends on how you define it. Uh, the argument when we were talking about certification of uh, fish NL was that definition and that alone. But there's the concept that there's in the neighborhood of 10,000 people who are on the water fishing. So that's a pretty big number. And you remove them and their operations from it, then it's the local shops and the gas stations and the supplies that they use. So I think the ripple effect uh, or the multiplier effect of that would be pretty devastating to rural if all of a sudden there was a moratorium across the board. And, and I agree with you, Patty. As you said yesterday, um, just taking a blanket close uh, of, of anything is not a good idea. And that's not what I meant. So I, that's why I wanted to call back and make my clarification uh, because uh, the science clearly shows what the problem is and the world ignores it, <laughs> except for Newfoundlanders. It seems that the seals are the problem. Now, Patty, going back over a year ago, it's been a long time since he's been on your show. What's that one scientist that, uh, Patty, he sends you stuff once in a while, and you'll mention his name, but he does fantastic research on the problem in the, the overpopulation of the seals. I'm not uh, sure if you know the... Mr. Hardy? I think it might be Hardy. I have his name written down somewhere. Yeah, Bob Hardy? He was on your, yeah, that's it. Yes, Bob Hardy. And um, him and some of his colleagues and uh, other, other people in that piece, the science is so clear of the problem of the overpopulation of the seals. But, Not to, go ahead, Ben. But sometimes what we do, and this is on many issues, is we isolate one thing and identify it as a problem. When, in fact, yeah. it's seals sunlight, water temperature, phytoplankton, uh, changing habitat roots, it's the natural predation, it's the inshore and the offshore, so it's sea ice, it's things that some we can't control, some we can't. But it's all of those, plus I would imagine many more that I don't have the mental or scientific capacity to add to the conversation, but it's all of those things that have to be measured. Because when we isolate one, capelin, then we only focus on it and we don't talk about anything that impacts the capelin stock, then we talk about inshore, but then we don't talk about offshore, we don't talk about the gear, and we 
we don't talk about sunlight. We don't talk about sea ice. So I think there's a lot to it. It's easy enough to isolate one thing because it makes the conversation bite-sized morsels that is more manageable. But yeah, it's a no, big, complicated I, matter. I, I agree with you, Patty, and I am not suggesting isolate it. And I'm not suggesting close the fishery. I'm suggesting change direction and focus on, like you said, we didn't we didn't get a, half of our quota last year for the fishermen didn't get for the seal. And I get it. There's no market for it. So as you said, we need to think outside the box. And, you know, naturally, we're, we're a, a huge province, Newfoundland and Labrador, surrounded by an ocean. We're not going to ignore that resource. But I'm seeing um, the, the equipment that they have thousands of dollars into now and everything else, switch that. And, and also, the government should be hiring people, I believe, <clears throat> where, where we're paying $5 million to get a detailed report that we can't even see. Um, let's pay a few dollars out there. Uh, I'm willing to give my tax money towards it. Hire some, we've got them, marketing marketing experts to go abroad in Asia and all the places where there is a huge demand for our seal product. Only problem is we don't have it in cans or bottles to give it to them because we're not focused that way. So I'm but, saying the fishermen, we need to support the fishermen and help them help them in uh, in working towards a new, uh, doing things better. Because the, the few ground fish that are left, we're just, we're just uh, overfishing them. Appreciate the time, Don. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. And Patty, just one more quick point. Very quickly. Could. Very quick. The CMA, the Canadian Medical Association, um, they have a, a tight grip on all the scope of practices for all health and allied healthcare workers. And that and until those the, those books are opened up and the scope of practices for each individual uh, healthcare worker, including um, pharmacists, is opened up a little bit more. They can do way more than they're doing. We're going to continue to struggle in the healthcare system. Thanks for the time, Don. Yes, indeed. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, time for the news. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Penny. Good morning to you. Yes, thank you for having me on. Um, before I get to my topic, I just want to give a big shout-out to the Mount Pearl uh, Junior Blades, of course, uh, on winning the President's Cup. And uh, it certainly was an exciting series. It was right down to the wire. It doesn't get much closer than double overtime in Game 7. but uh, So it was a great series uh, by all. But uh, in the end, Mount Pearl came out on top, and that's just the way I like it. Um, well, they played pretty well in Game 7, and they put an awful lot of shots on the CBN goaltender. Uh, I think his name is Riley Patton, and he faced, or he made 61 saves, so that's quite a performance. Absolutely. Uh, it, like I say, it was great by, it was a great series. So congratulations to both teams, and uh, obviously I'm happy with the outcome, but uh, as I say, the they were all winners, and I think I think it was fair to say that uh, that that regardless of the outcome, that both teams uh, certainly did their uh, prospective communities very proud. Sure, um, Patty, uh, I wanted to just <clears throat> sort of talk a little bit about uh, Bait and Ord. Um, the problem is with your show is that there's always so much on the go. There's about a hundred topics to choose from, uh, but I, I do want to talk about uh, Bait and Ord today. And uh, I just want to take it from a little different angle, I guess, because um, we have talked about Baden Ord uh, in the past and about, uh, obviously, uh, the desire to get it uh, approved by Ottawa. Uh, I could go into a big rant about why we should even have had to go down that route once it was approved uh, from an environmental point of view and, and the report came back that uh, Baden Ord should be approved. 
I, I have to question why all the delays and why it even went to Ottawa, but that's that's a, that's another conversation. But the fact of the matter is, it has now received the blessing of the federal government, so to speak, uh, and now the province is, uh, I guess, continuing on with the negotiations. Um, with Equinor, uh, hopefully um, um, we're going to see in the not-too-distant future now that Equinor uh, will sanction the project and we'll move forward. That certainly is my hope, and I'm sure the hope of many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, albeit not not everybody, because some people are uh, not in favor of the project because of environmental reasons, and I respect your opinion on that. But the point I want to make is that as the province is now sitting down to the negotiation table uh, with with Equinor um, and we talk about what the benefits are going to be to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador given the fact that it is our resources um, uh, I, I just want to emphasize at least in my view the importance of maximizing maximizing um, benefits and employment opportunities for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's one thing to talk about royalties. Royalties are good, obviously, and that's going to help hopefully pay down our debt, help us diversify uh, our economy and so on. Uh, not knocking that. Uh, not quite sure where I am on the whole equity stake. Not sure if we should even be in that business, to be honest with you, but uh, that that's a decision that the government will make. But for me, um, one of the big things is to ensure that we uh, get the maximum opportunity uh, in terms of employment. And and, uh, so when we talk about, uh, you know, any of the work that could possibly be done here uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, you know, uh, whether it be, you know, work on the top sides and, and all that kind of work. And I don't know where this work is going to get contracted out to, but I would hope and I would certainly encourage the minister to try at you know to to really in the negotiations put a strong emphasis on maximizing employment opportunities uh not just you know obviously when it's up and running but all the work that's going to be needed to be done to prepare for that eventual uh outcome we have a lot of skilled train workers who have done work here in Newfoundland and other projects they've proven that they have the ability to do it and uh, so, and I know these are the things that uh, the trades and L have been talking about local benefits agreements and so on. And I certainly want to support them today in their efforts. And, and, and again, say to the province, let's maximize the jobs for our people. Sure. The benefits agreements are more easily applied to government led pieces of construction or infrastructure, whatever the case may be. It becomes a little trickier when we're talking about a partner like Equinor, who is the majority owner, would be the operator in the Beta North project. So I get it when we say, you know, more, no more giveaways. And even in the Hebron construction, where so much of that work was done elsewhere, and they simply paid a say, fine or a penalty of $100 million, whatever the number was was so when negotiating these things we have some capacity issues with the size of a laydown yard not all the work can be done here whatever can be done here should be done here but it's not as easy to apply benefits agreement to a non-government-led project no i no, i i understand that patty i i understand it's not simple again as i said it comes down to the negotiation process but when we're sitting down and we're negotiating this, we're going to be talking about, uh, like the minister has indicated, uh, they're open to the idea of equity. Like I say, there, there's mixed opinion as to whether we should be going down that road or not. But he's he's opened that door. We're going to be talking about royalties and so on, which are important. But also as part of the negotiations, 
we, there's nothing to stop the minister and so on to really put a strong emphasis in the negotiation process on trying to get as much possible work and much employment as we can. Because when we, when we simply get equity, and, and I'm not knocking equity, obviously, because you know, we need the money, but um, you know, that's money directly to the government coffers. But there's also a huge benefit uh, when, we, when we put our people to work, and then that creates a lot of spin-off, and there's a lot of service companies that open up or do well. And a lot of that money, most of that money does find its way back to the government eventually anyway, but it does, does so through the employment of uh, the people living here. So uh, I really think that that needs to be a strong emphasis. And, and another thing, of course, once the project is up and going, because one of the complaints I've heard over the years uh, I've heard from people, even on other projects and so on in our offshore, is uh, you know where perhaps some of these local benefits have not necessarily been policed the way they should have been policed by the CNLOPB, and having situations where there was loopholes, for example, where there might be a company that sets up shop uh, here in Newfoundland, uh, or they may be even from Newfoundland, uh, you know, with whether it be you know supply vessels or, or, or vessels that are out doing work in the oil industry and uh, yeah the office might be here might even be owned by someone from here and then the crew that they put on put on those vessels are from other countries and utilizing those kind of loopholes and not employing our own people so you know I, i think it's important all the way around to make sure that every newfoundlander who wants a job and and if the job is available can be done here and they're able to do it that they get first dibs at all those jobs. It's great for those employees. It's great for sure. government coffers. It's great for the local communities in which these people work. Uh, I, everybody understands that. And if we have someone who's trained and accredited and is able to do the job, they should absolutely be able to have that job. And I guess, and even the folks at Trades L, they will acknowledge the fact that we've had an awful lot of people from this province making the long-distance commute to whether it be Alberta, Saskatchewan, West Africa, or otherwise. And then we have had an awful lot of companies in this province doing an awful lot of work outside so we have to be i think aware of the balance of isolationist versus the pragmatic reality of opportunities for individuals and businesses inside and outside of the province but sure everyone who needs a job and is ready to do the job and has the training to do the job they should get the job i appreciate the time paul thanks a lot Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Paul Lane, independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about Game 7 between the St. John's Caps and the Clarenville Caribou at the Jack Burton Arena tonight at 8 o'clock, and the winner goes on to play the Southern Shore for the Herder Trophy. Took away. Welcome back to the show. All right, so the heavily favored St. John's Caps go to a Game 7 with the visiting Clarenville Caribou tonight, 8 o'clock at the Jack Burton Arena. Join us online and write to tell us about the series and the game tonight. The opportunity to watch it virtually, if you're unable to get to the Jack, is Seamus O'Keefe. Good morning, Seamus. You're on the air. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm doing okay, man. How are you doing? Good. As the uh, legendary, iconic coach, Badger Bob Johnson said, it's a great day for hockey. It is a great day. Game 7 is always exciting. It's cool that the junior series made it all the way to Game 7, and here comes this particular series, and the winner moves on to play the Southern Shore Breakers. And, of course, that's always a always a stout and a stern challenge. I guess St. John's finished first, Clarenville finished second in the Shore. Uh, what happened there for them to be to have advanced? What did they do yeah. in the semi? Yeah, no, uh, Shore got through with CBS in uh, four games to two, so they their series ended uh, pretty quickly. Uh, we had to shut down for COVID for a couple of weeks. Uh, went through the Clareville team, so we were a little bit delayed. Um, but the Clarevilles have played us tough. 
They, uh, I don't think they really were a fourth place team. Uh, a lot of veterans on the team, but they know how to play hockey. Uh, we're a bit of a younger team. We're high flying, and they just they've done what they need to do to shut us down and and, and mitigate our strengths. And uh, it's you know a great series. A lot of one goal games, and it's uh, a couple of overtimes. And yeah, we're we're here in game seven tonight. Doesn't look like uh, Keith Laney's run out of a, much gas. Connor Donahue, of course, an accomplished hockey player. Then you got the likes of Mike Dyke on the back end. So the Caribou have a pretty stern lineup. You you guys, of course, got the firepower with the league-leading score, uh, Carl McGraw. So, big one tonight. What's it going to boil down to? Uh, as always, goaltending. Uh, and I think they're, you know, you're splitting hairs between A.J. Whiffin and, and Kyle Downer. Both those guys bring their A game, and I think they're two of the top goaltenders, senior goalies in the province. Uh, a little bit of momentum. I think uh, the team gets up early. Um, stay out of the belly box. Uh, we'll have the best chance. I'm not sure I could take double overtime. My, my heart is a little bit weak, and I don't know if I can last that long. But uh, if we can get a, a decent crowd out tonight, uh, crowds have been growing. Clareville had, you know, just under 1,000 fans there Saturday night, and it really showed when they got up and got the momentum. It really helped their cause. So we're looking for a, a decent-sized crowd tonight at, uh, at the Jack Byrne. So you're with the St. John Senior Caps, so, you know, a pretty incredible regular season at 15-1. and one. Where has it gone a little bit astray, or can you mark it up to Clareville simply brought a really stern test I think that's it uh, you know we've played well in certain games I mean the games have been one goal games uh, a little bit of momentum it's been a penalty here a penalty there we've suffered a couple uh, defensemen have uh, been injured and a match penalty so we're a little bit short but it's been next man up um, so it's been a little bit tough there uh, but no Clarence was a strong team they, they those veterans who you referred to they know how to play they know what to do what takes the win they're rolling three lines consistently they've uh, they've done the little things it takes and they're getting some strong gold innings so it's, it's been a challenge but you know 3-2 2-1 these games have could have gone any other way so it should be in the playoffs and boy like you mentioned that is a pretty good duel uh, between the goaltenders Whiffen who for a while they're undisputably the best goaltender in the province and Downer really did pick up his game to become part of that conversation no doubt about it okay so not everyone's got in and around the Jackburn Arena to get there for the 8 o'clock puck drop but they can watch online yeah, we've gotten some interest from obviously from uh, our Caribou fans and some senior hockey fans right across the province. We've arranged tonight to have the game webcast. So if you would follow our links either on our Facebook page or go to the Avon East website, uh, AL TV will webcast the game. We've got Matt Little doing the play-by-play, and uh, you'll get a quality product for just ten dollars. Uh, good luck to both teams, and hopefully it's decided. Unlike the herder was decided when back when I was involved, because that dogs we do this day. <laughs> Yeah. No, we look forward to the game, and hopefully, uh, you know, there's a reason why we we played this game is to get to the herder, and it's something special, and iconic, and uh, you know, best luck to both teams tonight, and hopefully, uh, sure, out there waiting for us. Appreciate the time this morning, James. Good luck to all hands. All the best. Bye-bye. Seamus O'Keefe with the St. John Senior Caps Game 7 tonight. As mentioned, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Virginia Waters Pleasantville. He's the minister responsible for environment and climate change. That's Bernie Davis. Minister Davis, you're on the air. Patty, how are you? Doing okay this morning. How about you? Excellent. I just want to start off by saying go Caps, go. There you go. Uh, and fair ball. You know, I'm, in my years involved with senior, Clarenville were absolutely part of the conversation. Allen Cup champions, and they had some extraordinary teams out there. I don't know what the makeup looks beyond, like Justin Pender, Mike Dyke, and, of course, Delaney and Donahue. But, obviously, they brought their A game to stand up to the 15-1 and caps. Absolutely. You know, I'm a huge hockey fan, so, uh, you know, I think we share the same uh, same fan uh, base for the, the Montreal Canadiens who've had an off year this year, but uh, hopefully the Caps will come through for us tonight. Let me add another syllable. It's not an off year. It's an awful year. 
this is true. This is true. I, I tried my best. Uh, I was at a function uh, and I seen someone in the front row wearing a Maple Leafs hat, and I had to tell them that uh, I feel really good that I'm going to be cheering for the Maple Leafs this year because I know they're going to be in the playoffs. I know my beloved Habs are not going to be. So uh, unfortunately for that, but uh, it's been uh, an interesting year for sure. Yeah, I'm getting behind to the Devils and the Avalanche. Okay, let's get going to your portfolio. <laughs> in the most recent budget, of course, the announcement the day prior, and with very little fanfare, which I think is of note regarding the release of the uh, Beta Nord project from its environmental assessment. Given your portfolio, you will indeed have people who turn to you, those who think that the oil should be left in the ground, talking about moving towards or transition, a just transition from reliance on fossil fuels. You must have been inundated. What are people saying and how do you respond? No, absolutely. And I think uh, on both sides of any argument, there's going to be, uh, you know, people uh, that uh, would agree with Beta Nord and not. I've got to say that it's a great transition project uh, within the oil and gas sector. Uh, you know, the province is positioned uh, beautifully for, you know, the renewables that we have uh, that we've talked about with respect to wind and hydroelectric projects. And, and But we're also, uh, you know, can lead the world in, uh, you know, some, I hate to use the word uh, clean oil, but, uh, you know, um, oil that is uh, less uh, uh, carbon per per barrel so um, you know that that's an important piece that we have and and you know it's already been through the environmental assessment itself uh, federally so you know uh, it stands on its own environmental merits as well and uh, uh, you know I look forward to you know what uh, Equinor brings uh, to this province and for the people of this province uh, you know on a go forward basis uh, there is a transition period that the world is going to need oil uh, and uh, my uh, my thoughts are that it's uh, better to have our, uh, our oil than, uh, than others. Carbon intensity numbers, uh, the average off our shores is almost 15 kilograms per barrel. Uh, the international average is just over 17. It's 77, the oil that comes out of the oil sands in Alberta. And with the 137 requirements of Equinord operated Bay to Nord, their carbon intensity will be around 8 kilograms per barrel. So that's, uh, I think, important for context. Uh, let's talk about a couple of things. And what a definition of transition means is different for everybody, which I think makes the conversation quite tricky. But a low carbon economy fund, these have been created in most provinces right across the country. There's over $17 million in that envelope. What does it mean and how is it going to be spent? Uh, very good question. You've seen some announcements. Uh, this is a carry forward of, you know, about $89 million that we've had, 89.4, I think it is, with a uh, partnership with our federal government. Uh, you know, we've uh, announced a number of projects already. Mo uh, Memorial University is uh, changing out of the oil boilers uh, uh, to electric boilers would be uh, there. And it's it's $18 million that's been, uh, almost $18 million that's been transferred into this year's uh, budget. That's going to be other announcements that will be uh, forthcoming. Um, you know, we have some in the queue that are there. We've got others that have uh, applications just recently closed, so I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the reduction in uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, not only is it be be uh, beneficial for the greenhouse gas emissions, which is a priority here on this one, but it's also great for the municipalities or the businesses that have uh, utilized this funding uh, in partnership with the feds in the province uh, to reduce their costs. Uh, you know, I see municipalities like Mount Pearl have, have, uh, have uh, made changes to their depots, uh, that saved themselves, uh, you know, a substantial amount of money and reduced their carbon footprint, as well as, uh, you know, places out in um, uh, the arena out in, uh, in Port of Basque, uh, just to name a, a couple of those. So, yes, it's a, it's a great initiative that the Low Carbon Economy Leadership Fund is uh, there. But in addition to that, Patty, the federal government uh, uh, that, same, uh, that same week announced um, that they're going to be doubling 
doubling down on this low carbon economy fund, uh, putting another $2.1 billion, which is a similar number to what happened the last time. We're still waiting for the details of what's, uh, what the amount will come to this province, but we expect it will be a similar number to what we just uh, did over the past four years, which would be another close to $90 million. Uh, the number one contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the country is the oil and gas sector at 26%. At the close second is transportation at 25%. You know, and in the uh, Minister Cody's five-point plan, three of them kind of dealt with people who were absolutely vulnerable. Two, not so much. You know, oil transition to electric heat and then electric vehicle stuff. But the government needs to lead by example. So inside an envelope of $1.9 million for electric vehicle charging infrastructure, rebates for full EVs and hybrid vehicles, that's 2500 for one, 1500 for the hybrid. What's the status of the government's fleet of vehicles b- regarding electric and or hybrid? Because it's one thing to encourage the public, quite another to lead by example. No, you're, you're absolutely right, Patty. Uh, we have some electric vehicles in our fleet right now. I know Newfoundland Labrador Hydro has some. I know we have some here. Uh, I don't have the number in front of me, but I can get that for you. But I know that myself and Minister Loveless, um, uh, who handles the fleet for government, uh, have had many conversations about setting targets, about uh, you know uh, having a certain number of vehicles that we purchase every year, be it electric vehicles. I know we've all struggled uh, with supply chain and uh, microchips uh, with vehicles not just uh, electric vehicles, but oil, uh, gas vehicles as well uh, for delivery in the province. But that's starting to loosen up. I've had great relationship with the dealer network in this province, uh, and they've made some great strides in not only the education of the public, but also trying to show up those uh, supply chains to get those vehicles here in this province. So you're exactly right. We need to lead by example as a government, so that's why we're pushing uh, pushing uh, an infrastructure for you know those uh, charging stations that need to be there. We've installed 14 across the province now. There's another 19 coming this summer in uh, in other areas of the province, and uh, and in Labor- and and uh, uh, our first ones in Labrador will be uh, coming on stream. And then there'll be another, I think, uh, uh, more than 10 that will be uh, coming uh, from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro as well. So and Newfoundland Power that have all partnered with us on these, and we look forward to that. And I know the federal government is really pushing on infrastructure as well because it's one thing to encourage people to purchase an electric vehicle, but it's quite another to make sure they have the infrastructure there and make sure that outpaces the electric vehicle so there's no ever uh, uh, problem for range anxiety that would exist. So there's subsidies for the individuals to buy EVs or hybrids but there's also some concentration regarding a tax uh, credit inside the manufacturing processing sector. So can you give us some example because this would be transportation related whether it be with the forestry or farming or the fishery a 10% credit afforded to them if they move off to what I assume is greener or alternative uh, sources of energy versus what they're using. What exactly does that mean and what can they utilize? Because for some of the big issues like farming, there's not a whole lot available to move away from the traditional fuels that they're using. The fishery know that they've uh, they've dabbled with some more efficient fuels and uh, the put the paint on the hull to make your, ve- your vessel more efficient. But give us an example of how that's going to be applied. So uh, I think uh, you're 100% correct. There's a new green technology tax credit of 20% uh, to help businesses uh, specifically for capital uh, costs for green activities such as equipment or energy conservation and clean energy generation. Um, like you just said in, in farming, uh, I've, I've visited a couple of uh, tech uh, firms that are really working on uh, new uh, electric uh, engines for, for vessels in particular, not just planes, but uh, ships, uh, uh, boats. Uh, those are things that are 
early in the in the stages uh, for adoption, but those are things we need to start to invest in, and and things like this green technology tax credit are things that are going to help that. But in addition to that, we've also got uh, you know down with the uh, Minister Parsons and his shop from business and investment side. Uh, there's lots of uh, green technology firms that are going to start to uh, you know come to uh, fruition, whether it be uh, you know um, hydrogen or wind generation or tidal power. There's all of those things are going to start to uh, uh, really come. And we need to be leaders in, in this province, and we have, uh, you know, some of the smartest people through Memorial University and, and College of the North Atlantic that are doing some really innovative things, and we've got to be there as a government to help uh, create those climates uh, where that, that that knowledge can be transferred to the people and to uh, and make it, uh, I guess, commercialized uh, so that we could utilize that to better uh, hit our targets in 2050 and 20, or 2030 and 2050. Appreciate time this morning, Minister. Thank you very much. And listen, I'd just like to encourage every, everyone out there that when you do make that choice to go to an electric vehicle uh, or when your next vehicle is getting to the end of its life, look at that choice. They're coming down in price and the cost of ownership is quite substantially different than uh, people envision when you look at the uh, electric vehicle. So uh, thank you very much for the opportunity, Patty. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Good day, Minister. That's Minister Bernie Davis, Liberal Member for Virginia Waters Pleasantville. When we come back, John has an issue trying to get his mom into long-term care. And Penny's talked about the lack of coverage from the government in the provision of oxygen. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Uh, welcome back. Let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, sir, and thank you very much for taking my call. I'm happy to do uh, it. I appreciate your patience. Go right ahead. Um, I'm calling as a follow-up call uh, about the frustration I'm having in trying to get my mom into a personal care home. And uh, the last call I made was actually with Tim Powers when you were up on your well-deserved vacation. And so uh, just to give your you a background and uh, your listeners, so my mom was displaced from her apartment because of flooding on January 30th. So I want to give some perspective. That's 72 days ago, okay? She's 87 years old and has been out of the healthcare system, luckily, for 87 years. And this is the first time, really, I guess we've we've had to go a, an alternate route. And I, as her uh, son, have uh, been advocating for her and gone through all the necessary steps to get, you know, the documentation done, things like the chest x-rays, various things done. And as a matter of fact, uh, along the way, I was experiencing so much difficulty, I actually even called the MH, her MHA to see if they could uh, see if I was missing something or whatever. And the MHA also had difficulty difficulty with uh, uh, connecting with some of these offices. So uh, off the top, I just want to say, you know, up front, I'm certainly not faulting uh, some of the people on the ground, like the social worker that came here and did some interviewing with my mom and so on was absolutely professional and very, uh, just did a, a fantastic job. And I might add, had her paperwork uh, done in short order. And I also understand that uh, Eastern Health is experiencing some staffing shortages just due to like COVID and the uh, cyber attack. But we're still at a point where we have to solve a crisis. So with, with all those things said, um, you know, there's still some issues here right now that I think I needed to call on today uh, to bring to the forefront. So I guess... Um, John, just here, so I have a better understanding, what specifically is keeping your mom unable to get a spot in a long-term care facility? 
Well, that's the $64 question, isn't it? Okay. Because <laughs> I've, I've, I've had this uh, documentation in and done has been, well, when I called Tim Powers, which I think was the 25th, I think I got it written down, of March, the paperwork had been in then for a couple of weeks into the placement office. In other words, everything that I had to have completed was completed, and it was sitting waiting for her to be placed. Um, we, we got the answer that, you know, there's lots of urgent cases, etc., which tells me that there's more than one family than, than ours, obviously, going through this, and I recognize that. But, my goodness, 72 days as an 87-year-old who's living in a basement corridor out of a suitcase. Um, I'm sorry, Patty, I'm just at a point here right now where I am completely dumbfounded. And uh, one of the things that I think is the huge issue for me as, uh, you know, or our family here is the idea that, there's a lack of communication between the all the people involved. Like I can phone, I could phone every day this week and leave a message on a uh, answering machine, which tells me if you can't get me, phone a different number. I'll leave a message on that machine. I'll phone that one. That one tells me to call if, if it's an absolute emergency. Call another one. I'll do the same, and I still won't get a return call unless I'm persistent and lucky enough to finally sort of crash into somebody who, I guess, has to take the call at that point. So for me right now, for 72 days, I can't plan a single thing here. And lucky I'm retired because if I was working alongside of this, this would have been an impossible task because I can't really leave my mom in a in a house where she doesn't know, you know, the, the setup, the appliances, everything like that. And she needs some assistance there. So I have to be there for her. And I can't leave the house for fear that I'm going to get a call, uh, you know, to say today is today or, you know, get ready to move. So th there's no advance warning on this. You know, even though you ask for um, some advance on, you know, when is this going to be? Do you think it's a week, a month, six months? Like if somebody told me I could at least plan some degree of our, our family life here. Uh, John, what regional health authority are you living under? Eastern. Okay. Um, and I know you've made reference to MHAs or what have you. What groups or people have you had the chance to speak to regarding long-term care placement? I mean, there's such a thing as the advisory council, which I've had put some people onto in the past. They've gotten some, made some headway through some of the members of that particular council that was established a few years ago. Who have you spoken to? Well, uh, the MHA I, I spoke to was uh, in my mom's uh, area where she was living, down in Torbay, which was uh, Mr. Jody Wall's office, and they were very helpful in trying to, uh, you know, advocate for us as well. And uh, I, haven't, I hadn't talked to the other uh, group that you just referred to. Um, I guess after having a, an experience of working in government sectors and that in my own life, I, I knew some of the departments in health to call to ask some questions uh, uh, some basic level questions, but uh, for the most part, it's, you know, I, I keep getting the idea that, of course, we are strapped. And again, I have to recognize that that's the case living in a pandemic and so on. But people also have to understand that this is having a tremendous uh, impact on people who are trying to hold the fort. And, and it's really difficult to know what to, to do here, Patty, because uh, when her apartment flooded out, of course, we were there immediately and rescued her from that situation, took her things out of there because we knew that the apartment was going to have to be completely rebuilt, and we housed her. Okay, that for me as a citizen, I took some pressure off the healthcare system to, you know, obviously look after a family member. However, 
when it starts to get to be months of looking after somebody who needs care who, and so on, it becomes uh, very taxing for the, the families involved. Well, I can only imagine. And, you know, the complications when we're trying to keep couples together, even though they need different levels of care and long-term care, people who have to take the first bed available so they live out in Placentia, but they end up getting a bed in town. I mean, there's so many issues inside of the long-term care uh, world that no doubt it's become very complicated. But for you, your mother and you, you yourself really need to have some sort of timeline, maybe not set in stone, but to give you some idea about when you can anticipate or expect. Now, I know, well, actually, I should just Patty, wind that back. Patty, I'll just, I'll just, sorry, I just would say this would be personal care as opposed to long-term care. Oh, okay. So the, so the, the people involved, just again, I guess for the benefit of your listeners, would be they would have a degree of independence, even though she's 87 she she has a fairly high degree of functionality but does need assistance with some things for sure understood uh if i knew where to point you specifically to get you any traction i would do exactly that and happily so uh well my call really is to uh just put this out there again in the uh the public ear and in the government ear because like i could get a call on this today because I have no idea when there's going to be a solution. It could be this afternoon. It could be, like I said, next year. And that in itself is an issue, like because we've had to cancel things like uh, vacation time, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, from one week to the next, people are kind of, well, it may be next week. It may be the week after. There's, you know, it, it's very difficult right here now that uh, you can't get any kind of sort of uh, – finality to this in terms of a closing date even within a month you know what i mean and that that in itself uh tears this this whole structure apart that we're living in and of course uh the pe- the pieces that people don't see is also when your other family members are calling you from different parts of the world saying why haven't you got this done yet and you can't give an answer which is added pressure, of course, to the family that's trying to deal with this and really trying to help out healthcare by housing her temporarily. The, the unfortunate thing for me is, Patty, and this is a gross statement to say, and it's not who I am, but if I'd left her ankle deep in water and walked away, she would have been looked after by now. That's a sad commentary on a sad state of affairs. I, I wish you well, John. I appreciate your time. Say hello to your mother for me. You have a great day. Same okay. to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Will I take Penny here, Dave, or take a break? Let's go to line number six. Penny, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? Uh, not too bad, I must say. Uh, I just want to get a shout-out to the boys. They gave us a, another fine year of curling. Something for this poor old soul to watch, anyways. <laughs> it has been an extraordinary year for Guzhu and the boys. Came up a little short, but there's no shame in losing to the six-time no, world champion. No, sir. They did a wonderful job, I must say. My situation is this. I, uh, I'm i here on oxygen, and I'm telling you, it's it's, it's really taxing my, my bottom line. And we got no, we got no help with it. We're only one of two provinces that don't have any help paying for their their oxygen. And it, we're both, my husband's a senior, I'm a senior, with the price of gas and the price of groceries, the price of heat, it's uh, it's it's really it's it's getting to be you know sit in a chair and don't move so you don't waste too much energy. Penny, give us an idea what it costs to uh, get oxygen, say for a month. 
Uh, well, just for the machine alone, it's uh, $140. And then if you want a couple of tanks, you know, to get out every now and again, which I very seldom do, it's uh, $20 a tank, so it's roughly about $200 a month. It's on top of your pills, your puffers, everything else. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many different areas. You don't, have, you don't have air, you don't have you don't have life. Exactly, I understand. So I don't understand it. I wonder how many people would be receiving supports if it was indeed in place. I would imagine quite a number. I I don't know, but uh, I know I know it, it's it's a terrible thing to say, but it's it's it, you know it's it, it's just depressing. I stay home because I can't get out. I can if I get out, I got to worry about how much oxygen I'm using. Even just talking on the phone, I run out of breath. And I'm battling COPD. I'm battling cancer. It's just sometimes I wake up in the morning. <laughs> I I say, Oh my God, I'm still here. I'm not, you know, I'm not depressed about it all. I don't like to hear that. Um, but, of course, that's your reality, so I, I completely understand. I don't know if there's ever been a support for people who are using oxygen at home from the provincial government and it just went by the wayside. I don't know. I'd have to have a look around at it. I think if you were on social services, I think you might have you might have gotten it. Quite possibly. Yeah. But we're not on social services. We're retired pensioners. Penny, I'm happy to put this question on my list that uh, for the next time we get a chance to speak with the the Minister of Health in particular. Would you like to say anything else while we're speaking with you this morning? Uh, one more thing about sure. the doctors. Okay. Um, in my area, we're doing very good. We have we have one one of our own here is our doctor. She grew up here and, and was raised here. And she went to Monon, went to school, and came back here and opened her practice. And we're, we're so grateful for that. Because at least we, you know, we can understand what she's saying and we can... We can uh, we feel, you know, we feel comfortable with her. It goes a long way to your overall state of mind with that level of comfort. Penny, I will uh, promise you I will ask the minister this question on you and your husband's behalf. I appreciate your time, and I wish you nothing but the best. Okay, thank you, Penny. Good to hear from you. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about roads up on the northern peninsula and some conversation about school buses. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Naman. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you this morning, Patty? Not, not too bad, sir. How are you? Not too bad, sir. Listen, I'm calling here now from Roddickton uh, about the conditions of Route 430 and, like, uh, the rest of the highway uh, north of Plum Point. Uh, like, I mean, we got potholes now here and asphalt that's, like, you know, there's holes in the it. It's absolutely ridiculous to drive a machine over it. I just... Uh, <clears throat> came back from traveling down to Cornerbrook, had to go up uh, with one of my grandsons to make uh, to get dental work, and these roads are absolutely, absolutely dreadful. The unfortunate reality for me is that I know full well there's people listening to this show in every nook and cranny and region of this province nodding along and saying, so are mine, and that's the, that's the bloody problem we face, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but... You know, what uh, sort of uh, gets me is, like, the last time I think there was, uh, like, that we had, let's say, uh, the roads here 
done. I say it's about 31 years ago, and the rest of it has just been patchwork and this coal patch. And I mean, like, uh, you put it in the holes, you drive over it, two days later, it's all beaten out. I mean, yesterday and the day before when I drove the coast, there was places I actually had to stop my vehicle and actually creep over the road. It's that bad. And like not only here in Roddington, like the road between Roddington and Ing Lee, the road between like Plum Point and Sanathy and the communities in between, like it's absolutely deplorable, Patty. And like it's not the point like I know everybody on the island has these issues this time of the year. But you know, I mean what I'm you know, I mean, I pay I pay into a system, into a tax system. And you know, I don't know uh you know what's going on here, but I mean like we haven't had any road work done here in this area. I mean, as years we've had, yes, like I said, patchwork done, but like uh, the road have not been upgraded or resurfaced in about 31 years because the reason I know that is because when the roads were first done, the asphalt and that, I worked uh, at road construction at the time and I was I was part of it. Do you happen to know where you file on the fall on the hierarchy of the five-year plan? Uh, didn't he scrap the five-year plan? No, well, no, not really. They have uh, given it some gray area wiggle room for, you know, problems that maybe come up with washouts or what have you. But they do have a strategy for what roads are next. I was just curious if you had a chance to look at it or ask your member about well, it. I haven't had, like, within, uh, like, this five-year plan came in, I think, under the white ball uh, when he was premier. I think that was the plan came in. I think that's something like three years ago now that the five-year plan came in. And, uh, like, we haven't seen any substantial or increase in our road work in this area. Uh, but, uh, like you say, we're, we we must be definitely, like you said, in the gray area because we're not in the black and white, apparently, up here on the Northern Peninsula. It seems like, uh, you know, the only time we see politicians, uh, and I guess you've heard a hearful on this before, I guess, uh, like, it seems like the only time we see anybody is during an election. Like the last time there were uh, there was road construction done in this area, actually uh, we had to block the roads, and uh, you know that's what happened. That's the reason we got pavement in Roddington back years ago, and actually that was under the Brian Pickford administration, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I'm serious, Patty. Oh, I'm, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing no, because know, it's so long I ago. <laughs> I know why you're laughing. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, well, that's, 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 the, that's the scenario of it. As like I said, I mean, like, uh, they did, uh, <clears throat> I think it was two years ago, they came in and they done some patchwork between Roddington and Ing Lee. And, I mean, you know, the road should have been completely re done, Patty. It's absolutely ridiculous to drive down to Ingle, like it's 17 kilometers from here, and it takes you practically a half an hour to get there. Unfortunately for folks in the area, and sometimes we talk about it insofar as what it means for beating up the, the rims and your suspension and what have you, but the 
the deplorable road conditions are absolutely a public safety issue as well. And sometimes if we lean on that, we see some attention given to it because people tell horror stories of like a school bus route that is so close to the shoulder of the road, which is falling away to a big steep uh, uh, incline that they might go over one of these days. We talk about people trying to duck and dodge potholes and ruts right on the blind turns and consequently putting themselves in risk in harm's way. So there's a lot to the road conversation. And hopefully we can back out some of the politics of pavement, which has been an unfortunate reality in this province, whether or not people want to acknowledge it, it absolutely has been. I'll give you the last word, uh, sir, before uh, I walk but, to the uh, news. But, uh, Patty, like, uh, you're talking about, like, you know, the washouts and all that. Well, actually, yesterday, coming down and the day before going up, there's actually where the shoulders of the road is completely gone. And I mean, and I mean, and a lot of them don't do not even have warning signs or anything on. Like I came across the what well, we call it the country road, which is Route 432 from Plum Point into Roddington Branch. And I mean, there was one time, like I mean, I saw a hole there it was about a foot deep, about three feet across. And I mean, I just had to cut the SUV. And I mean, as lucky, you know, uh, my grandson in the back, and we had on our seatbelts and that. If not, they would have been thrown completely across the vehicle. That's how bad the roads are. It is life-threatening, Patty. I'm sorry to hear that, but I do appreciate your time this morning, Norman. Thank you, sir. Okay, sir. You have a good day. The same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. A little late for the news, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on at the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency, ACOA, as we know by acronym. Speaking with the Minister, Jeanette Petitbaugh-Taylor. Don't go away. Your VOCM 2022 ECMA nominee for Media Outlet of the Year. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament serving the folks of Moncton, Riverview, Dieppe. She's the Minister responsible for official languages and responsible for the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency, ACOA. That's Minister Jeanette Petitpaw-Taylor. Good morning, Minister. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Patty. It's really great to be with you. Quite a mouthful, that, t- that title of mine is, huh? They all are. To be honest, especially when we get into the ministerial portfolios. Just a quick question about, I know we're going to talk about some clean tech and clean energy and the just transition, what have you. But inside the envelope, say, for instance, carbon capture and storage, not all systems are created equal. How rigidly will projects be vetted for access to federal funding? Because it's one thing to store it, another thing to bury it, another thing to inject it. So how rigid will the vetting process be? Well, that's a really good question, Patty, and that's, those are the details that the department will be working on to make sure that the proper analysis is done, to make sure that the proper programs are in place. Uh, we certainly recognize that all Canadians want to do their part uh, when it comes to, you know, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, and the, ca- the carbon capture program is one of those programs, uh, but again, uh, the department will be doing um, more detailed work with respect to putting that in place. What does clean tech look like? What exactly is clean technology? Well, I think that clean tech can mean different things for different people, but certainly what we're really focusing on is making sure that whatever product that is out there, that we really are looking at reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. We really have to look at innovative type of work that is being done, Uh, and there's a lot of amazing work that's being done in this province here. I know just yesterday alone I had the privilege of going to meet with three companies uh, that are just doing really stellar work in the area, and I oftentimes tell my staff uh, we just really don't 
don't know what's going on in our backyard. But there's a lot of, you know, state-of-the-art work and research that's being done right here in Newfoundland and Labrador and other parts of Atlantic Canada. And we really need to do more to promote the good work that's being done. Some of the catch-all phrases that are thrown around, like a just transition, it means different things to different people. I'm curious what it means to you because it might be the the province's reliance on offshore oil royalties or the types of jobs and the transition training. What does transition and just transition mean to you, you know, insofar as focus on individuals versus focus on corporations? I think that, you know, the summary that you gave there is really, it's a bit of all of that. And I think that when it comes to a just transition, we just really, again, want to make sure that as Canadians, that we're setting ourselves up for the future, setting ourselves up for success. But once again, making sure that we really take our responsibility as good stewards of the land to make sure that we do all that we can to make sure that we protect our our lands, because this is the last shot that we have. Uh, So we have to do our our part to make sure that uh, we get this right uh, for the future of our children and our grandchildren. When we green the economy, people will talk about the transportation sector and the oil and gas sector. With our greenhouse gas emissions in the most recent report, the oil and gas sector of fossil fuels contributes about 26% of our emissions. Transportation, a very close second. But also the concept of utilizing different alternative forms of energy to power up federally owned buildings is a good place to start because those retrofits comes with a job. So it might have been a job you had in the oil sense, but now you're working on a retrofit of a skyscraper in Toronto. So where do you start the focus? Because it's fine to talk about electric vehicles, but that requires some uh, evolutionary change and a change of buying habits and infrastructure that needs to be put in place. Where do we start with things like retrofitting buildings? Because that creates a job as much as it does reduce emissions. Well, I think there's two parts of your question there, Patty. First and foremost, we look at Budget 2022. We actually have a section in there at looking at federal government buildings and making sure that we do all that we can to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from our buildings. Uh, you know, we're preaching this, so we certainly have to start at home and making sure that we green our buildings as well. So moving forward, that is certainly an area of priority for the government of Canada. But to your point, when you talk about, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions that are, you know, put it put out by our vehicles, we recognize within the cars that we see on the road today, 25% of our emissions come from vehicles, either transporting people from one place to another or also uh, transport, transporting our goods and service. And that's why moving forward within this budget, we are adding more to the envelope when it comes to allowing people to get rebates. So if they choose to buy uh, uh, an electric vehicle, that they will have you know more monies uh, towards that, that purchase. And finally, when we talk rebate. We also recognize that many companies well want to play their part in making sure that they reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And when, within this budget as well, there's a specific envelope for small and medium-sized businesses. If they choose that they want to electrify their fleet, that there's monies that are available for that as well. And finally, let's not forget the issue of the infrastructure, as you made mention to, with respect to the charging stations across the, the, the country. We certainly recognize that many people sometimes are, are hesitant to purchase a, a vehicle because of the rage range. They really fear that they're not going to have the range available, you know, before they can um, get to a charging station. And as the federal government, we've made a lot of investments in that area. And for those who have electric vehicles, feel that we've got, you know, good coverage. But we even want that coverage to be better. And that's why that we are making significant investments in the infrastructure to making sure that we have charging stations across the country. So if you want to leave, you know, Newfoundland, St. John's, and you want to drive to Victoria, British Columbia, you will have access, you know, to those charging stations that are necessary along the way. And once again, not feeling guilty about driving across the country because you're not putting out any greenhouse gas emissions. And one last thing I have to say, Patty, yesterday I had the privilege 
privilege of actually trying out an electric vehicle for the first time right here in St. John's. And it was really, really quite fun. And I have to say what really um, resonated with me is that these vehicles just don't even make any noise at all. It's really quite something. They're really peppy. And uh, I really, you can really see that it's the way of the future. Help me understand how government counts some of the emissions because sometimes we double count things like in the world of agriculture, people will talk about cows and methane, for instance, but inside the envelope of transportation, does that include all the agricultural equipment across the country? Because that's one of the, uh, some of the tough places where that type of equipment and the work demands on it, the technology hasn't quite caught up for the masses to be able to uh, purchase those types of rigs. So do we count that in, trans- in transportation or is it strictly counted in agriculture? it's a bit of both uh patty to be frank and again when we look at wanting companies to you know um to make sure that they green their fleets uh, a lot of work and innovation is being done with respect to providing you know electric options with respect to these tools that are out there so we certainly recognize that a lot of work continues to need to be done but to your point earlier when you indicated that we have to transition perhaps you know some job sectors into another there's a lot of great innovation work that's being done right now in developing these tools right now these machineries uh, these vehicles uh, so again we really have to focus you know on that innovation to make sure that everyone is going to have cleaner options in order to get the job done. Last question, and this regarding ACOA specifically. So with all of the startups and the increased innovative ideas and technological advancements, there's an awful lot of companies with the entrepreneurial spirit, but ACOA over the years has been a little bit risk-averse. So we know getting capital is a tricky piece of business, but does ACOA has it changed its mandate to understand the ever-changing landscape of what companies have a real chance, even though it's in a very competitive market. So speak to the uh, the risk-adverse effect that ACOA's had in the past versus what is an ever-changing world on access to capital today. Well, I, I think perhaps that I would disagree with that question. I think that ACOA has really been at the forefront on the ground, and I think that the secret sauce of the, the, the beauty of ACOA, why it is so working so well within our communities, is that because of the boots on the ground, um, knowing kind of the industries, knowing what is needed within the communities, we've been able to make some very good uh, investments, uh, sound investments, and in making sure, you know, that we are investing in, in companies uh, new and old alike to make sure that we can, you know, see those investments flourish. Uh, ACOA has been there to support small and medium-sized businesses for the past 35 years. Just last year alone, Patty, we invested more than $314 million uh, in Atlantic Canada. Uh, that's a significant investment. We've been able to, you know, protect over 5,000 jobs, created 1,000 new jobs during a pandemic year. So ACOA has certainly been there front and centre, has been there to help small and medium-sized businesses during, you know, the hard times of the pandemic. And now moving forward, we'll continue to make the investments uh, that are needed to grow our economy. I thought that, that that was the last question, but this is. Okay, how formalized is the relationship between ACOA and uh, entities like Memorial University Centre for Entrepreneurship and or the Genesis Centre? Because... You know, unless both or all hands are working towards the same goals, all hands understand what the process will be, all hands understand the risks associated with applications, how formalized are those relationships? I would say that the formalized relationships are are quite solid. I know that when it comes to those types of companies or institutions, uh, working collaboratively is really key, Patty, to to the comment that you made. Uh, I know yesterday we've met with a few businesses as well that, you know, they may be competitors, but they continue to work collaboratively uh, in order to help each other out. So as Atlantic Canada, I think that we have to start, you know, competing, you know, as one. We are small provinces, but together we have, uh, you know, a, a large force there. 
So uh, when it comes to developing partnerships, working collaboratively, uh, that is really, you know, really, really important um, in this in this field. We appreciate your time this morning, Minister. Welcome to town. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's uh, Minister of ACOA and Official Languages, the Honorable Jeanette Petitpa-Taylor. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking ride-sharing. That's a good one because the province, like every other province and most of the modernized world, grappling with the shortage of rental cars. Of course, when the pandemic struck and travel stopped, then the rental car companies sold off their fleet. And then the complications, even with semiconductors, what have you, even trying to replenish the fleet has become a problem. So we'll talk ride-sharing, then we're going to talk about school buses. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Craig, you're on the air. Uh, top of the morning to you, Patty. You too. Yes, it's an entertaining show this morning. And, uh, and, and personally, you know, a couple of calls ago, you know, from the state of the roads uh, is personally related to my topic. Uh, and I'm just being entertained watching all the black boxes blow down the street here. But uh, in the meantime, I think one of the obstacles to ride share, I mean, there's a lot of families here that have a car parked in their driveway that they're not using most of the time. They have uh, two and three vehicles, do you know what I mean? And uh, the roads could be a big obstacle to letting a stranger go off down the road in your car. Well, you'd have you know to weigh I mean? the issue, yeah, of course. I mean, you're, I mean, it's simple enough for, I mean, for a guy to fly in from, say, Ontario and uh, put his insurance on your car. Do you know what I mean? That's a phone call. Yeah, I don't know if it's as simple as that, to be honest with you. But, you know, like everyone who's ever rented a vehicle, more often than not, people drive it like they stole it. That's right. I'm I'm saying with the state of our roads, I mean, uh, who who wants your second car coming back with no front end and no no rims and tires? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure what to say to that. People would evaluate for themselves whether or not they're willing to try to bring in a few extra bucks to put their car on the road under the uh, the bum of a tourist. I don't know. That would be an individual decision, I suppose. Yes, but I mean, I think with the roads being the way they are, it could be holding some people back, say, well, I don't know, should I take the chance? Well, it's not even available, so I suppose we, we could cross that road when we came to it. And why isn't it available? Is it not legal here or what? I don't know. There's something called uh, Carpool World, which, which makes reference to this province. There is no application, whether it be Lyft is one of the real popular ride-sharing uh, applications that are out there. So I don't know why it's not here. I would imagine there's things that have to be done at the PUB regarding insurance, and the insurance bureau would have to be on site. But it's everywhere else. Well, that's not fair. It's in an awful lot of other jurisdictions, so there's no reason why we can't explore uh, instituting it here. Because just imagine if we lose X number of bookings because people can't get a rental car that kind of leaves a lot a, a lot to be desired i know it's not as simple as the government flips a switch and all of a sudden there's a full brand new fleet of rentals around but we we can't be left on the outside looking in because of something like that that's right i mean and like i say i mean you're, you're basically renting your car to somebody else is what it is but that's what i mean by ride sharing i'm not telling you saying you're going to drive them around yeah. Right? I mean, okay. you know what I mean. I mean, okay, I suppose- you're going to rent out your second car for the summer. Put it that way. I mean, there's and there's obstacles to that. I mean, I can't see why there'd be obstacles. 
well, there's there's obviously all kinds of obstacles that would be included, and you point out a couple. You know, it's the risk that you're willing to take on, and uh, of course, whether or not there's insurance applications that absolutely have to be dealt with in a regulatory fashion, which I don't imagine is a huge hurdle, given the fact it's done elsewhere. So I guess that's something we'll have to explore if we're going to deal with the potential problem of uh, revenue left by the wayside because someone can't get a rental car. And someone else sent me a note saying, you know, it's this is the only place where you'd have that problem because if you were visiting the greater metro area in Toronto, then the access to public transportation would do away with any of those types of concerns. But of course, if you're just planning on coming to this province and staying in and around St. John's and taking a couple of tours provided by a tour operator, that's one thing. But if I want to land in St. John's and have a, a lighthouse picnic up in Fairland, I want to go to Mistaken Point, and then I want to go... Uh, to gross mourn or I want to go see the exploits or whatever. I want to go wherever, the you know, St. Vincent's to see the whales. That's where the rental car b- issue becomes a problem. That's right. And I mean, I'm saying that could be offset if you're allowed to just go ahead and rent your second car out. Sure. And the roads being the way they are, I mean, it, I mean, people are coming from other places where they don't, they've never seen roads like these. You know, they're, they think they're back in India or something. With all the potholes and lack of... Even driving around St. John's is bad enough. But, I mean, like I say, as the further I think you get off the Trans-Canada Highway from anywhere, the roads are gone. Far too often, and it always reminds me of the fact that back in 2016, for the budget lock-in with the media... The government was quite quick to uh, applaud themselves for getting more kilometers for less money, which does not necessarily mean we're getting better roads. In fact, it probably means the exact opposite. We've just... uh, It never ceases to amaze me that I know we have a freeze and thaw cycle that is pretty intense but we're in Canada so freeze and thaws in a lot of parts of the country if you look at the roads and the condition of them on either side of Terranova Park it's another example of whether it be road work prep and or the chemical compound or the asphalt or the thickness of the asphalt there's something we're missing something here as you know it, we're not getting the value for money spent that's correct and I mean you can't go by like you just said I mean oh we're going to add 5,000 kilometers worth of pavement, but I mean, what's the point if the pavement's no good to start with? Yeah, then there's the time of season and how long the uh, the crews give before they put the traffic back on it and the temperature at which they lay down the blacktop. I mean, there's lots of different things in the asphalt world that uh, becomes part of the concerns. Anything else, Craig, before I go to the news? No, it was just an idea, you know, just to say, you know, there's lots of people with uh, two or three vehicles in the driveway and they mainly only drive one. Probably right. Thanks for this, Craig. All right, thanks a lot, buddy. You're welcome, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, Steve, appreciate your patience. He wants to talk about not only school buses, but a museum featuring school buses of years gone by. That's in Hershey, Pennsylvania, I think. Or, man, he says it's in Illinois. I just saw something that said Hershey, PA. We'll find out exactly what Steve has to say right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven. Good morning, Steve. You're on the air. How are you today, Patty? Doing okay, Steve. How you doing? I'm talking. I'm calling about a museum based in Illinois. It's called the Midwest Bus Museum. Okay. And what they do is they go out and rescue buses, like old school buses and motor coaches and transit buses. They go out and rescue these vehicles, 
and they restore them to their natural habitat for the North American transportation industry. That's what this is about. So have you been there? No, I have not been there, but uh, they're on Facebook and they're on YouTube as well. Uh, They just rescued three more buses within the last past weekend, uh, the past weekend. You donate, people People donate money to them, and then they go out and, and take this money and rescue their buses. That's how they do it. I just found the website. It's really quite easy, too. It's uh, just MidwestBusMuseum.org. I haven't clicked through the website or anything as we're talking this morning, but if people are interested, what brought your interest to this particular museum? Because I'm into the buses. Well, I'm not a... a I got a lot of friends that are school bus operators here in town in the city and in CPS area. And I took an interest in the in the bus in the company back in two thousand nineteen when they released they released there in twenty twenty and I took an interest in how they're taking all these old buses and restoring them to their natural habitat. I mean Nobody stay. I mean, you take all the school buses here in St. John's. I mean, once they come off the road after 12 years, they're gone. They're scrapped. They're gone to the land. They're gone to a landfill. They're not being. They're not being preserved here in, in Canada at all. I just had a look at some of the roster of historic buses. The two-tone green and yellow 1968 GMC 5500 Thomas, all the way to the 75 Gillig School Coach, which is a flat square front uh, rig that looks actually pretty cool. So, yeah, they've got a pretty big fleet of buses here in their collection, that's for sure. Yeah, they got a, there's a couple of them. There's, a, I think, three or four guys that are all collectors and one guy at least got 50 school buses for sure, 50 or more. And I've been talking to these guys on the phone from Illinois. I've been talking to them on enough about the museum and what they're doing. And they're very pleased when I call and say, hey, guys, you know, you just did three more rescues, right? So... Well, it's interesting. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So do, are you uh, a, an auto enthusiast beyond the world of busing? Oh, Jesus, yes, antique. I mean, I'm into antique and classic cars, too, as well here, and uh, school buses, D-Lands as well, all the, skidoo, all the vintage snowmobile manufacturers. I'm, I'm really into a lot of old vintage stuff. What about muscle cars? Oh, yes. What's your favorite? You know, uh, the Dodge Dart was always my favorite, and my neighbor, actually my own neighbor, uh, right now, got a 1970 Dodge Dart 340 Swinger. He has had it since the last 45 years, and he still got it today. Inside the 1970s world, when I was a kid, I couldn't get enough of the uh, the Roadrunner Superbird. Uh, but if I had the money to go to one of these, uh, one of these auctions, I'd be looking for a '64 GTO. Oh yeah, they're beautiful cars. I Absolutely. Mean, my uncle, my uncle Freddie, uh, my uncle Freddie got a fifty-one Do- nineteen fifty-one Dodge Region, and it's the only one on the island. The only one. He had he had that car at the Dodge City a few years ago, and they told him it's the only one they ever heard of in Newfoundland. Wow. What's the guy's name here in this province who's got that extraordinary collection? Uh, Is it called Vernon's? 
shop. Vernon, yes, Vernon Smith. He's got some whack of collection. I've always meant to go. One of these days, I'm absolutely going to call him up and see if I can come out for a visit because it looks like an extraordinary collection. Oh, my God. Yes, sir. You got a 69 Hemi Charger out to worth 130000 Wow, cool. They, uh, I'm absolutely going to go one of these days. I do appreciate the automobile. And what's that big uh, auction I'm trying to think of down in the United States? Oh, yes, there uh, are. Yeah, Barrett-Jackson. Exactly right, Dave. Barrett-Jackson, yes, they're at that all the time, too. Yeah. So why people come, you know, people go down to Barrett-Jackson and spend a fortune on cars. Oh, yeah. Do they ever win? Speed Channel was on my package. I used to watch a fair bit of Speed Channel because I do appreciate MotoGP and Formula One and what have you. But I would watch some of the Barrett-Jackson auction just to get a look at these beautifully restored, sometimes to original, sometimes they're, sometimes they're kit cars. But anyway, good stuff. I've enjoyed the chat, Steve. Anything else you want to say? No, I just wanted to say that now they just picked up, uh, they just picked up this, a 1971 Superior uh, Superior Body Bus, uh, School Bus Superior has been made in the last 20, 25 years for Superior. They picked up two Superior buses, uh, a 71 and a 73. They're both Chevs. And they just picked up a Carpenter, by, a 1970 Carpenter. Carpenter's been off the market for a few years, too, now. So, Very cool. Good to have you on the show, Steve. Anyway, take care, Patty, and have a great day, bud. You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. There you go. Uh, Chris chimes in. He's got his heart set on a 66 GTO 389 six-pack. No problem. Let's go to line three. Wilson, you're on the air. Hi, uh, Patty. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Not too bad. A little bit frustrated about things, but other than that, not too serious. I called... uh, and mostly the shortage of doctor, family doctors in the province. And uh, I, d- I just don't understand why we can't, the, the government or we can't fix it. Because uh, my feeling is that uh, we should go into the high schools, go into the schools, uh, and recruit people to go, pay them, pay their their tuitions, pay their uh, whatever costs, uh, their, their housing and that, and they would have to keep up a certain good mark, which could be run by the university. The other part of that is there's only so many seats in med school, a lot of Newfoundland people, and I don't understand why we can't uh, get more of those instead of going to other provinces who raiding it and their, their doctors are coming back. We can't get them. Our doctors are coming out and, and they're going after them uh, in order to uh, with all kinds of incentives so that we don't get our own local Newfoundland doctors here. And I don't understand why a- Dr. Eggy hasn't pursued this or, you know, in other words, start in school, start in the in in the in the university, and keep these people, uh, you know, get old to them and and pay them and even pay them some sort of a 
that's salary. Well, I, mean, I don't know. Do we need to go that far? Plus, Memorial University is looking for some increased autonomy from the provincial government. And the uh, curiously, the Faculty of Medicine is a bit of a quasi-standalone entity with its own budget. It's hugely competitive to get a seat at Munns Med School, even though they expanded the number of seats some while back. I've talked about this on the show, and I get some pushback, and I'm told it's not possible, to institute something like a service agreement. I'm already subsidizing their education. I really am. So given that fact, I don't know why we can't try to figure out a way, especially for uh, people from this province who get a seat in the med school, that you owe us some time here in the province. You know, pick a number, five years. And we get to tell you where we'd like you to go practice for those first five years, given the fact that I helped pay for you to get through med school. I get that it might be... Uh, something that dissuades people from using our med school, but the numbers of people from this province that graduate from there, they'd be more inclined to stay versus somewhere from somewhere else. Then there's the concept of even in the world of family medicine, you still need some tutelage and mentorship upon your graduation, and with so many retirees in the fold, that becomes another complicating factor. So I don't know how easy it is to settle or to solve it, but certainly the med school has to play a role. Yes, and I, and I agree with that totally. And like I said, I don't even I, I would I would even suggest ten years. Get them to sign a contract for ten years, whereby, and and they have to maintain certain averages and what have you. In other words, between the university and 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 the med school and 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 the government, I'm sure that that, that we could do that. And we would, you know, if we had. Newfoundland students entering knowing that their their education would be paid for and they'd had some sort of honor or a little bit of money making while they're going to university in order to keep them afloat and their 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 lodgings and that are looked after that uh, we would maintain a lot of Newfoundland students where we're not going to maintain them and we can't maintain them because there's too many people raiding them the minute that they get ready to graduate. And remember, there was a story not so long ago where the doctors in the med school were displeased with their interactions with the minister and thought that they were you know, not treated fairly or spoken to in an appropriate manner. And then I'm not really sure what the upside is for, it used to be the case where it was the faculty felt at Memorial University, then it splintered off into a whole bunch of different schools, nursing school, pharmacy school, the med school itself. Now they're all going to fall in under the same umbrella again. What that gets us, I'm not 100% sure. Very good. And the other part, the other thing I wanted, wanted to speak on was, uh, well, w- w- with relation to that, uh, nurse practitioners. Now, I haven't had a family doctor. I had a family doctor for 60-odd years. I lost my family doctor. I live on the West Coast. And, uh, uh, you know, and we get a lot that the things are difficult in Central. Well, they're difficult there, too, very much so. And the, the thing is, uh, I get a feeling from Dr. Eggie that the few people who are nurse practitioners are trying to set up that he doesn't want this two-tier system and that he sort of blaming them for jumping the gun and 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 he and he's not supporting it in one way or other. Well, I find it uh, without it, I'd be in a difficult spot because uh, I'm a senior. I've got COPD. I got di- diabetes. I've had bypass surgery done, uh, aneurysm surgeries. And it's not just the prescriptions, getting someone to write a prescription. It's getting someone to look after these, the blood works and what have you. And I have found the nurse practitioners to be an excellent short wave out of that. I don't necessarily, you know, I think they, 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 they've done an admirable job, but they're getting pounced on not to do it. They're, 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 they're tr- tried at every, every step 
by the by the minister in his arrogance, I say, that to try and prevent this from happening. And that's that's not doesn't seem right to me. I appreciate the time and your thoughts this morning, Wilson. Thank you for the call. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Same to you. Bye bye. Bye. All right, let's take a final break of the morning. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number six. Kelly, you're on the air. Well, hi, Patty. Um, I am calling uh, because how seniors are treated. Um, my 79-year-old mother uh, was waiting to get back into a home, and the home themselves were amazing. Uh, but there was, so she went back in, and um, anyway, the way the story went was somebody in the upper management of the home had made the decision that she wasn't ready to be in this home and was sent to the emergency department and was there a day and a half without any medications, any clothes, before I was notified. I was appalled. So here's my poor old mother in the emergency department for a day and a half, not knowing what is going on and a kind nurse took it upon herself uh, to find out the information and let me know. She went in Friday at four. I found out Saturday at eight in the morning, which would be 12 your time. I'm in BC. And she's here in this province? She is. Okay. The- How did something like that happen? Like I, I'm, I just couldn't believe it. I think there's a bunch of reasons. It's quite likely that the lack of access to a family doctor leads to more and more people going to the emergency room simply so they can see a physician. Secondly, when you don't get timely uh, uh, engagement or interaction with a doctor, all of a sudden maybe your symptoms worse and then you are an emergency case. So I think there's a bunch of reasons why we've seen such extraordinary wait times inside emergency rooms. And, you know, health is a complicated affair. So I don't know if it's any one thing we can point to, but there's a systemic problem facing the entirety of the healthcare delivery system, not only here, but right across the country. Totally. But the thing that gets me, like, I know I've, you know, got to watch what I say and stuff, but, you know, our government uh, can put out, I'm not sure what the number is, $61 million to journalism um, so that, you know, it's to be careful of what they're saying. And That's not what that was for. What was that for? There's a small, the small market uh, outlets were getting just pushed aside. And I there's a reason to protect small scale and small market journalism. That's, you know, I, everyone thinks it's to pay to so that you say what the government wants you to say, which is pretty nonsensical. I know it's an easy one for people to fall into that hole, but it's not for that at all. Like... We don't get it, so I don't, I don't know, but I know someone who works at one of these outlets in particular. They've never heard a word from anybody. All they do is they're able to keep the doors open and keep reporters hired because you can't trust the big national outlets to come cover the issues that are important to you at your city council or things like that. So that it was a bad idea because it was inevitably going to be the fake news uh, rally cry that has really been a problem. But anyway, I'll give you the last word, Kelly, before we have to go. Okay, well, the, the thing is, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm I'm not up on all the facts, but that are, it's crazy that our seniors, you know, are being, in my situation, my poor mother ended up there a day and a half. Like, 
where's the money to look after our seniors? Like, I, I, I'm just devastated that something like that could happen. And apparently it happens way too often. Like, where's the compassion, you know, for our seniors? I'm, I'm just appalled and upset that something like that could happen. I understand. And you're not alone, Kelly. I appreciate you making time from the show all the way from British Columbia. All right. Thank you, Patty. You're Thanks welcome. Take good care. All right, uh, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.